Good morning, brothers and sisters in Christ. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 4 for our reading from the New Testament. Philippians chapter 4. Let us hear our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as he speaks to us through this, his word, his holy and inerrant and infallible word. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown, in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I urge you, Odia, and I urge Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I also ask you, true partner, to help these women who have contended for the gospel at my side, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your graciousness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, through prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable. If there is any moral excellence, and if there is anything praiseworthy, dwell on these things. Do what you have learned and received and heard from me and seen in me, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know both how to make do with little and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances I have learned the secret of being content whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Still, you did well by partnering with me in my hardship. And you Philippians know that in the early days of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you alone. For even in Thessalonica you sent gifts for my needs several times. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the profit that is increasing to your account. But I have received everything in full, and I have an abundance. I am fully supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you provided, a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will supply all your needs 
according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me send you greetings. All the saints send you greetings, especially those who belong to Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. I invite you now to turn to the Old Testament, to the book of Psalms. This morning we come to the third Psalm. This one is entitled, A Psalm of David, when he fled from his son, Absalom. Let us hear the word of God. Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. But you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again because the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Rise up, Lord. Save me, my God. You strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessings be on your people. Let us pause for a word of prayer. Our Lord and Heavenly Father, we come to your word and we hear of the great distresses that even the most godly of your saints endure. We are reminded of your word from your apostles that we must through great tribulation enter in to the kingdom of God. We do not like that, Lord. We do not cherish the thought of having to endure trials and temptations and suffering and persecution in this life. But you have told us that you will bring us through them, that you will be with us every step of the way. And by your grace, you will care for us, you will provide for us, and you will work in us that joyful acceptance of all that you bring to us and that confident trust in you that our lives will be a testimony to those who know you not. The truly one who is supernatural dwells within us and cares for us. Heavenly Father, open our eyes to hear and understand your truths as they come from your word today. May your spirit use them to lift up hearts that are discouraged, that are overwhelmed, that are crushed and broken, and to cause them to praise your name 
for your wonderful love and care. For it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. What is your greatest fear? Is it speaking before an audience? If I asked you to come up here and speak and I went and sit down, would you, would you faint and fall to the floor? Is it failing your final exam? Is it losing your job? Is it losing a loved one in an accident? What would you do if you had to face your greatest fear? Would you get angry and violent? Would you have a panic attack? Would you go into depression? Would you shut down and be unable to act? Psalm 3 takes us along as King David faces the unbelievable. His own son plots to murder him and to take his place on the throne. This is not a little thing. This is huge. It is overwhelming. It is terrifying. Yet David is not terrified. Impossible, you say. Unreal, you think. No, this is very real. And God intended this passage for you. That you too may learn to trust in Him and rest in peace in God in the midst of great distress. But first you have to come along with David and you have to experience his trial with him that you might also experience his source of confidence. This psalm begins with a heading that says, A psalm of David when he fled from his son Absalom. You might tend to skip over these headings when you read the psalms, but this is verse 1 in the Hebrew Bible. And it is part of the inspired word of God. And for us to properly apply Psalm 3 to our lives, we must interpret the psalm in light of its historical background. This heading and the first two verses of Psalm 3 show us David's great distress. God just revealed in Psalm 2 that God chose David and his descendant to be the king's over the people of God forever. Psalm 2 repeated God's promise to David and to his descendants that when they are anointed as king, God will adopt each of them as his sons. And God will take, will never, will never take his love and his protection from his anointed ones. David is now God's anointed one, God's Messiah, with a small M, not a big M, because Jesus Christ is God's eternal Messiah, the anointed one of God. David sits in the place of greatest honor and power in Israel. But the heading of Psalm 3 reminds us how drastically that changed David's own son, Absalom, plotted to take the throne from him. And David had to flee out of the city for his very life. 
2 Samuel chapter 15 and verses 1 through 6 tells us how Absalom plotted to overthrow David. It says, after this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gate. Whenever anyone had a grievance to bring, a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and he asked, What city are you from? If he replied, Your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, Look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, if only someone would appoint me judge in the land. Then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me, and I would make sure he received justice. When a person approached to pay homage to him, Absalom would reach out his hand and take hold of him and kissed him. Absalom did this to all the Israelites who came to the king for a settlement. So Absalom stole the hearts of the men of Israel. The Bible tells us that Absalom then gathered 200 men and went to overthrow the king, his father. The conspiracy was so sudden and so surprising and took David by such complete surprise that all he could do was he and his household had to quickly flee from the city to avoid capture and death. 2 Samuel 15 verse 30 tells us of the great grief that Daniel and the people experienced when this happened. It says, Daniel was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered, and he was walking barefoot. All of the people with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they ascended. Psalm 3 and verses 1 and 2 tell us what was on the mind and what was in the heart of David as he fled from Jerusalem. He poured out his great grief and distressed to God in prayer. He said, Lord, how my foes increase. There are many who attack me. Many say about me, there is no help for him in God. Even David's close advisor, Ahithophel, went over to Absalom's side. And this must have terrified David because 2 Samuel 16.24 says that Ahithophel was one of those counselors who was so incredibly insightful that his advice was considered to be like counsel from God himself. Ahithophel immediately told Absalom that what he needed to do was quickly raise 12,000 men and pursue David that evening and kill David and bring all the people back. David knew that many were already saying about him, there is no help for him in God. That is to say, not even God can deliver David now. It's over. Absalom will be king in his place. Have you ever found yourself in such a position? 
Has it seemed to you that even God himself has abandoned you? Or that even God himself is unable to do anything about your situation? But can God's promises fail? God has said, I will never take my love and my care from my anointed ones. Never. Is not God the creator and ruler of all? Doesn't God know everything from the beginning to the end? Is he not the one who is always in control of all things and who works out all things for the good of his people? Have you heard that promise somewhere in scripture? Has he not already promised in Psalm 1 verse 6 that he always watches over and cares for his people? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Then do not despair. Take hope. Be confident in your God. Verses 3 and 4 now show us God's great grace. David continues his prayer to God. He prays, but you, Lord, are a shield around me. My glory and the one who lifts up my head. I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. David secretly sent another advisor, Hushai, to Absalom's court to try to give him bad counsel. Hushai went in and professed allegiance to Absalom and advised Absalom and said, no, 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 this plan that Ahithophel has proposed to you is not good. It's not good. It won't work. Surely David is waiting and, and prepared and will overthrow this army and then all of Israel will side with David against you. No, you must wait and you must gather men from all of Israel and when you have amassed tens of thousands of men, you must go and you must crush David. And amazingly, Absalom and all his men rejected the wise counsel of Ahithophel and embraced the foolish counsel of Hushai. And we read in 2 Samuel chapter 17 and verse 14, Since the Lord had decreed that Ahithophel's good counsel be undermined in order to bring about Absalom's ruin, Absalom and all the men of Israel said, The advice of Hushai the archite is better than Ahithophel's advice. And as Absalom waited and sought to gather men from all the tribes of Israel, this delay saved the life of David. And it saved the rule of David over Israel. And Ahithophel was so offended that his advice was not followed that he set his house in order and he went out and he hanged himself. God graciously turned the heart of of Absalom to act on foolish advice. 
And through it, God saved the life of David and saved the kingdom of David. And it is likely that David has this amazing occurrence in mind when he prays, but you, Lord, are a shield around me, my glory and the one who lifts up my head. David, or God was better to David than David's own palace guard, which would surround David with their shields to protect him. Talk about the secret security that protects the president. They're nothing compared to the, the guard around David with their shields. And let no one in. David is also reminding us of God's initial covenant promise that he gave to Abraham and to all who, like Abraham, trust in the one true God. In Genesis 15 and verse 1, God says, Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. What is the greatest reward we can have from God? It is God himself. What is the greatest protection we can have in this world? It's God himself. I am your shield, God says. I am your very great reward. God is both the one who protects his people and the one who is the greatest blessing that we can have. Notice that David also calls God my glory. What do we glory in? Maybe we glory in a, a win of the Cowboys. Maybe we glory in the win of our, our basketball team. Or maybe we, we glory in certain movies we love to watch. David says, my glory. Not my accomplishments, not my money, not my riches, not anything. My glory is God. God is my glory. Though God does bring honor to us, yet the greatest glory that we possess is for us to know God and to be cared for by God. David also calls God here, the one who lifts up my head. Now, why does his head need lifted up? Because as he's walking up the hill, he's taking off his shoes, he's barefoot before God, he's crying out to God, his head is down, he's looking at the dirt, he's walking across these stones with the stones hurting his feet, he's crying out to God, he's weeping before God. God lifts up his head. The one who is in despair lifts up his head and praises God for God's answer to his prayers and God's protection of his life and God's protection of his people. God lifts up his head from despair to praise. David then in verse 4 praises God for answering his prayers. He says, I cry aloud to the Lord and he answers me from his holy mountain. And for every blessing that God wonderfully, graciously gives to us, we too, like David, should lift up our hearts and praise our powerful and loving God who perfectly cares for us. And next, in verses 5 through 8, God shows us David's great confidence. Verses 4 and 5 
are translated slightly differently in different English translations. Some put the verbs in the past tense, and others put them in the present tense. But in either case, the meaning of the verses is clear. David is either telling us what had already happened, as the ESV translates, I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. Or David is very dramatically recording what is happening. As it is happening, as the CSB translates, I cry aloud to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. I lie down and sleep. I wake again, because the Lord sustains me. To use a modern equivalent as an illustration, David is posting on Facebook or on Twitter and is relaying what is happening in his life as it is happening every step of the way. David here expresses his great confidence in God. Now, if you knew that your son was out there gathering a vast army of tens of thousands of soldiers with the intent of coming and destroying your army, and murdering you, would you be able to lie down and sleep that night? Could you do that? Who could do that? Don't we toss and turn all night long over things that are trivial compared to what David faced? Don't we worry about things that we can't do anything about? As if worrying is somehow going to fix them? How can David have had such peace and confidence to go and lie down and sleep in the face of an imminent battle and possible death? The answer is because he knew that God was in control of all things. Because he knew that he belonged to God. Because he knew that God was watching over him and caring for him. Because he saw that God had just heard and amazingly answered his prayer. Because he knew that God's promises do not fail. Because he knew that God was supporting and sustaining him even in the midst of this terrible situation. Because he knew that even if he should be murdered and die, he would be safe in the arms of God forever. David adds another statement that expresses his great confidence in God. In verse 6 he says, I will not be afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. Now we can also translate this in the present tense. I am not afraid of thousands of people who have taken their stand against me on every side. We know from 2 Samuel 18, verse 7, that Absalom's army numbered in the tens of thousands when it came out to attack David. David had done what he could do in the situation, but there was nothing more that David could do. He gathered all the people he could for this battle. So David left it in God's hands, and he went to sleep. And when he woke up, he was not afraid of whatever God chose to do in his life. He had learned to take comfort from God's promises and God's answers to his prayers. He had learned to trust in God to do what was best for him. 
1 Peter 5, 7 exhorts us, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that he may exalt you, so he may lift you up at the proper time. Cast all your cares on him because he cares for you. Psalm 3 and verses 7 and 8 record David's final words on this. The last two verbs in verse 7 are challenging to translate, and our English translations render the verbs in four different ways. I think the New English translation gives the best rendering of the verse, and I will slightly alter the Christian Standard Bible to give a translation that places the verbs in the future tense. David cries out to God, Rise up, Lord! Save me, my God! Yes, you will strike all my enemies on the cheek. You will break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. May your blessing be on your people. David knows that he is about to face the greatest challenge in his entire life and that there is little that he can do about it to influence the outcome. Very soon an army of tens of thousands will face those who have rallied to protect David and to protect the rule of God's anointed one. David is caught up in a war that is about more than him and the throne. Satan himself has marshaled the forces of Absalom to wipe out David and the righteous from the land and to put an end to the line of the Messiah right then and there. But David pleads with God to protect his people and to judge those who would seek to destroy the people of God. And then David confidently expresses his confidence that God will answer his prayer. The New King James Version translates verse 7, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have struck all my enemies on the cheekbone. You have broken the teeth of the ungodly. This is normally interpreted as meaning that David's plea for help was based on what he had already seen God do for him in the past. But here is where we can be benefited by a knowledge of the Hebrew. This perfect tense in the English can be a prophetic perfect in the Hebrew which is a rhetorical future tense, which means that David is dramatically stating what he is certain God will do in the future. This is how prophecies are frequently expressed in the Old Testament. It seems strange, but they're often translated in the King James in the past tense. But they're really speaking of something that is yet future. Some comment on it and say that the Hebrew expresses the past in the sense of, in God's view, it's already accomplished. That could be true, but it's more likely that the perfect should simply be understood there, not as referring to a past, but a future tense. This is why we can properly translate these two verbs as future tenses and see them as a statement of God's, of, of David's absolute confidence that he knows that God will deliver him. And God will deliver the righteous 
in the coming battle. The wicked shall not overcome them. In verse 8, David states that he knows that his help, his deliverance, his salvation is in the hands of the Lord, and he knows that God delights to bless all who call upon him. Remember the words of Psalm 1, verse 6, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to ruin. Are you in the midst of a great trial? You too can pray Psalm 3. You too can trust God to answer. You too can rest in confidence in God's good purposes and care, just as David did. But, tragically, David knew that in many ways he was to blame for what was happening. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. David plotted to murder her husband Uriah by having him placed in the thick of the battle and the soldiers fall back from him so that he was killed. And what an opportunity this was for the wicked man Absalom to be able to twist these things and to make it look like Absalom was the righteous person and he was removing corrupt, sinful, wicked David from the kingship. But the truth is that Absalom was a very wicked person. Absalom raped the ten wives of David that stayed behind in Jerusalem to look after the palace. And while David repeatedly refused to take the life of King Saul, God's anointed, even though Saul had repeatedly tried to kill David, Yet Absalom set his heart on killing David and wiping out every soldier and civilian that was with David, even though God had anointed David as his king over his kingdom in the place of Saul. How sad it is that both in the workplace and many times even in the church, that it is often too true that the arrogant wicked portray themselves as being more righteous than the humble godly. We must very carefully evaluate each situation to be sure that we really are on the side of truth and holiness. We must follow the words of Jesus in John 7.24, which says, Stop judging according to outward appearances. Outward superficial appearances may seem to make it look this way. We need to dig down and see what's really going on. Jesus tells us, rather judge according to righteous judgment. And sadly, it is also true of us that we too are often to blame for the trials that we find taking place in our lives. We know that it is our sins that cause the problems that we are facing. And we are devastated by that. How can God ever forgive us for our sins? How can God ever be on our side when we have done what was wrong? And our despair is only increased tenfold by our knowledge of our contribution to the problem. 
We wonder how God can ever forgive us. How God can ever use us. How can God ever use me to build His church and to build His kingdom? How can God possibly use me? When Satan presses us down with feelings of guilt and shame that totally crush us. But here we must remember we have a Savior. We have a Savior who has taken our place. Have you forgotten that He suffered and died for all your sins? All you who trusted in Him? David knew that he had a Savior. David knew that he had done wrong, he had done wickedly. David very humbly, grievously, with great tears, repented his great wickedness. And he rejoiced that God forgave him. He grieved that he lost his son. God took the son of Bathsheba to heaven. David lost him. But he trusted in his God. And you can too. For your God has forgiven you through Christ. If your faith is in Christ, all your sins, not just the little ones, all your sins are forgiven. All your sins. God forgave David even for the horrible sins of adultery and murder after he very humbly and deeply and genuinely repented. And if God can forgive these sins, he can forgive all your sins too. David, in his terrible sin, and I know you're going to find this amazing, but David is a picture of Jesus Christ, the one true Messiah who took upon himself all the awful sins of all those who trust in him and who bore the punishment for those sins. Christ died and rose And the sins on Jesus were so awful that the Father in heaven could not look upon Jesus on the cross. That the Father in heaven poured out his wrath upon Jesus on the cross. But having died and suffered the infinite wrath of God for our sins, having risen from the dead, the Father and the Son were united in infinite love and communion because all those sins were paid for and wiped away never to be seen again and those sins included the sins of all who trust in Christ your sins are gone they're taken away you might wonder if this teaching gives to us an excuse or gives to anyone an excuse to sin and think nothing of it. It doesn't matter if I sin because Christ has died for all my sins. It doesn't matter. I can do whatever I want. It's no big deal. 
Is that what this doctrine leads us to? Not at all. Because God's purpose in forgiving us is not to free us to walk in wickedness, but to free us to become holy and righteous. That is His purpose. We must remember that every sin in our lives, though forgiven, will be met by God's discipline as needed. Not His judgment, but His discipline. And what was going on was part of God's discipline on David for his great wickedness to not only forgive him his sins, but to transform his character and his life that he might never do such wickedness again. God never judges those who have faith in Christ. His judgment never comes down upon those who have faith in Christ because he has forgiven our sins for all eternity. But God does discipline us when we need it because he has now claimed us as his and he is working in us to make us holy and to make us like our Savior. God is committed into doing whatever he needs to do to make us into the image of his dear son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. And he is doing that right now in David's life. Just as these great trials that came upon David were part of God's plan to create true humility and true holiness in him, so too God is working in our lives through trials to create create true humility and true holiness in us. David's sins were great, but so too was God's work in him. 1 Kings 15.5 gives this amazing comment on his life. For David did what was right in the Lord's sight, and he did not turn aside from anything God had commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hephite. <coughs> wow. Did David learn his lesson? Did God accomplish his purpose? He certainly did. Now this is not saying that David was sinlessly perfect. But his life was a life in which he showed total submission to his God, love for his God, carefulness in his walk, and confession of his sins each and every time he sinned that he might be right with his God. In the providence of God, the people of Israel rallied to David. Though the life of David and the Messianic kingdom hung by just a bare thread, yet when Absalom's army confronted David's army, Absalom's army fell apart and was crushed and routed and destroyed. And Absalom himself was killed. God preserved his king and his kingdom. And when Satan made another attempt, an even greater attempt to kill the final and eternal 
anointed one of God, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And when Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross and buried in the grave, and it looked to everyone like God's promise had failed, then God raised Jesus up from the dead and enthroned him on high as the final and eternal son of David, the son of God to rule over all the nations forever. Your place in God's eternal kingdom may seem small. It may seem insignificant compared to King David's place. But God inspired David to record his prayer for your benefit. You who trust in Christ can have the same confidence that you belong to God and that God is working out all things for your good and your growth in holiness. You can be confident that God will always care for you and that his blessings will always rest upon you. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, what a wonderful promise you've given to us that the Lord watches over the way of the righteous. Oh Lord, we delight to be called the ones who have been made righteous by Christ. The ones whose sins are forgiven the ones indwelt by the Holy Spirit, the ones in whom your Spirit works to make us more and more like our Savior. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would open our eyes to see our sins every day, to see our need of your salvation, to put our faith in you, to receive forgiveness from you for our sins, to receive daily your grace and your guidance. We pray, O oh Lord, that you would graciously grant us your comfort in the trials that we face, the trials that so easily and quickly and overwhelmingly terrify us. We pray uh, that we would be comforted in knowing that you work all things in our lives for ultimate good. We pray that you would use our trials to refine us and mold us and make us more and more like our Holy Savior. We pray that you would give us courage to be used by your Spirit in the lives of others for their good. We pray that through the rule of Jesus as the head of the church and the ruler of the nations, that you would be pleased to protect your church from our sinfulness, to protect your church from wolves that enter in seeking to destroy it, to protect your church from coldness of heart and scandal and division. We pray that you would remove those who are arrogantly immoral and false teachers and those who seek to use your church only for their own financial profit. We pray that you will make your church holy and pure and cause it to proclaim clearly and with power your gospel of salvation and the rule of Jesus Christ. We pray that you will fulfill your promise that the gates of hell will never prevail against your church. We pray that you will fill your people and your church with your glory. 
We pray that you will cause the light of your presence to shine out through us. We pray that you will shine the glory of Christ through your people to the peoples of the world and continually bring in a great harvest of souls into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. All these things we pray in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.